Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Hollywood Breaks. Today, Keith and I discuss Kareem Daniel, the unique role he has in decision-making for a studio and how the industry is pivoting or not based on these kind of roles. So welcome to this episode of Hollywood Breaks. You saw that article from The Inkler this week about Kareem Daniel. Of course I did. Come on. Isn't it interesting that we've, you know, I remember when he first got his title, this role, uh, and we were doing the, doing our podcast that we had a lot of conversation about him. But, you know, just last week we were talking about the end of the content, the golden era of content. Mm-hmm. And this thought of like there are decision, going to be new decision makers or possibly in this case already decision makers that think differently about content than just, you know, what the creative aspects of it. Right. And specifically with Kareem, it seems like he has a, a very unique role where he has a PL level decision making, but he's making business decisions differently than being this creative force or creative decision makers. Uh, unlike your friends at Paramount, which feel like they are primarily the the content forward kind of thinking. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's interesting because the ankle article was really the first deep dive into sort of his back creams background and, you know, where he came up with, I mean, everyone knew he was like Bob Chapik's number two and Chapik was a mentor to him and they kind of followed each other around the company. He had a very similar sort of idea of, uh, so GE back in the day, this is how they would train their the executives. They would just dump, there was a division that was having a problem. They would, they had like a group of like high performance individuals and they, okay, you are going over to the refrigerator factory and you're going to fix all the problems. Let's see what you can do. And you're going to go here and you're going to go there. And it seemed to be, that's kind of what they were doing with Kareem. They were kind of just bouncing him around to various divisions just to see, at least this is what, it seemed like this is what Bob was doing. Bob the second, I should say. And, um, you know, it was interesting to sort of get a background on him. He doesn't have a ton of creative experience. And given how much power he holds, particularly the PL, now he doesn't make any creative decisions per se, mm-hmm. but he does control the PL. For those of the those of you who are not in the industry speak, so if you will, PLs are basically statements that executives look at when they're assessing whether or not to make a project. So it's basically a profit loss statement. You're looking at how much money you could potentially make and how much you'll lose. And you, Traditionally, the ones that I have seen have usually have a high, medium, and low case. So high is like your full profit. Medium is like, okay, you're going to break even. Low is you're going to lose a crap load of money. So they sort of break it out. And they break it out by all the ancillary chains where you can potentially ancillary revenue chains where you can make money. So there's a theatrical release. There's pay window one. This is back in the day before streamers, obviously. Pay window two. And then you go into you know VOD. And then you go into the cable and how much you're going to get paid by TNT or TBS. And. So and some of the P and L level decision making, we would say is not necessarily making creative decisions, but they are making decisions on a go right. no go quality, right. and therefore right. maybe even the budget and who's yes. involved. And some yes. some actors are very well paid, so it even makes some creative decisions that way of who Correct. you can afford and not Correct. afford. I mean, it's a very interesting process, and you know, typically a lot of studios have green what they call green light committees, and one of the the processes of that is. To do a deep dive into a PL and take a look and see, well, okay, how much money are we going to lose? Is this really worth it? And then you have marketing and distribution have a say, international has a say, obviously there's domestic distribution. They all sort of sit around the table and be like, okay, let's talk about what we're looking at here in terms of of you know what we can actually make on this movie. And for a long time that rested with the studio execs. So for example, at a place like Disney. That would rest with Alan Bergman, who's currently the chairman of Walt Disney, well, 
Golf Disney Content Studios, terrible mm-hmm. name, but that's what they're called now. So the, he would have control over that. That has all been taken away from him. And now Kareem sort of controls all Take that. away from Alan Bergman to Alan Bergman to Kareem, from Peter Rice to Kareem, from Dana Walden to, you know, so they, none of them have P&L power. And it's a very, it's a very an integral part of the process in terms of what gets made and what doesn't get made. Now, there was an inference in the article that said, like, Kareem just basically assigns blocks of cash to each division and they determine how much they're going to spend on each project. Um, and then what ultimately I think where the P&L really comes into play is like, where is this going to go? Are we going to put it on Disney Plus? Are we going to put it in theatrical? Are we just going to do day and date? How are we going to work? It's like Turning Red is a good example of sort of the first one that really caused a little bit of controversy because everyone was like, wait a minute, it's a Pixar movie. Uh, kids need and families want to go to the movies because they're sick and tired of sitting at home. Why would you not put that movie in theaters? And then went on Disney Plus. So the question is... He was also part of that decision-making with uh, Black Widow. Right. And some of the fallback was called Johansson. Yes. So let's just back up to... Uh, why he has is becoming such a powerful figure at Disney and what the difference might be is that um, in the Alan Bergman case or, or um, anybody that sits in that seat at a studio, you can understand that they're basically working and collaborating with the creatives to determine what the vision right. and purpose of the film is going to be, yeah. who's going to see it, the demographic you're going to appeal to, so like a family movie, mm-hmm. a couple's movie or what have you. Yeah. And you can uh, understand the creative aspect there. In Cream Daniel's case, his role has been the assign, that's been assigned to him is the person who just determines which channels the content is going to be distributed from. Correct. So they purposely use the term content. That's the one key aspect to it. Yep. And the other is they have a strategic decision maker of where. Mm-hmm. And now that where being put really first, right? Because if you're giving Cream Daniel, that that role and that seat of what's greenlit, you're actually saying where matters more than what uh, the studio is making. Yeah, I mean that's that that was the more interesting part about it because they they said early on in the article that it's determined very early where something's going to live, and that's just sort of like they go, okay, this is going on Disney Plus. There's no, it doesn't seem like the the uh, regular way of business is like okay, um, we're going to just produce this movie and then once we have the movie in the can we'll figure out where it's going to go that doesn't seem to be how it works it's like you determine up front where this is going to go um and then you just ride with it and i'm sure they can make adjustments according to like oh my you know if the studio the movie plays through the roof they're going to be like oh wait maybe we should do a theatrical release on this and then maybe kareem's team runs the numbers and they're like okay maybe that makes financial sense or maybe it doesn't um and the blocks of money makes sense because, as you mentioned, the creative process, a lot of times the director or a producer will come back to the studio and be like, hey, I need another half a mil to finish this scene or it's going to not work. And the studio's like, okay, fine. So mm-hmm. for someone like a Bergman or a Sean Bailey, who's the president of production, if those conversations, if they're just getting blocks of cash, then they're like, okay, if we give them the half mil, where, where are we going to get it from? It's not, it's not just like a giant pot of cash that you get to spend every year. And, you know, you got to go figure out from there, which is kind of how it used to be. There was always, it wasn't really ever a sort of spigot that was turned off unless you started really going nuts. Um, so it seems to me that the, there's a little bit more control in terms of how much you're spending, um, you know, when, the, when it comes to, you know, 
plugging the holes or problems in, in, in each particular project. It's interesting because uh, the conversation we were having with Tim Heidel a couple of weeks ago was this thought that, you know, the scorecard of the f- theatrical distribution being the primary scorecard mm-hmm. and everything else kind of taking secondary or picking up the pieces really in this Disney model, they're kind of saying the same thing too. They're basically saying, Hey, box office isn't everything anymore. Right. There's actually a lot of opportunity and need for different types of distribution channels different uh, strategies for content. And as you can see, like maybe in the Marvel Universe um, kind of case study where they've introduced characters straight to OTT platform, straight to Disney Plus, only to introduce characters that they can later make a film about. Um, right. They are kind of getting this back and forth 360 play. Yeah. Um, how, how do you think that compares or competes with the other, other studios? So for example, like Paramount, where we've right. for the last, you know, we've been recognizing that they've had such a strong run, and Mar- mm-hmm. uh, Maverick coming out next week. Wow, it's yeah. coming up finally next week. Finally, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, no turning doubt. back now. <laughs> but Paramount seems to have is saying something different. They seem to be saying there's a content first, or at least brand to the content first that they're talking about before they even care about platform. Mostly because right. they don't they don't have a strong platform play. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because when, when uh, Brian Robbins got the job, the feeling around town was, oh, he's getting the job because he's committed to the streaming side of it. And Jim Giannopoulos was sort of ushered out the door because he was super committed to theatrical. And uh, Sherry Redstone was like, yeah, I need to get the numbers up on Paramount+. Plus. Now, obviously, given what's happened over the last few weeks with the tech stocks bombing and Netflix, Netflix crashing – Obviously, the the idea of it just being about the subs is no longer subscriptions is no longer the driving force. It's about okay, show me how you're going to make money on this. So, I think a lot. Of, I mean, I think when Disney first started making those moves early on, I think a lot of the studios are like, hmm, maybe that makes sense. Maybe we have a separate department that makes all the distribution decisions, and then all our various you know studios or whatnot are just content creators. They just produce the content, and then we a separate department with all this data decides where it goes. And I, I don't know if they, everyone's embracing it as much as they were when it first was announced because everyone was like, Disney's just killing it. We just got to do what Disney does. And it's very much, the industry runs very much on this idea of like, whatever the other guy's doing that's working, we're all going to do it too. Course, I mean, that's yeah. how you end up with all these different kinds of movies that all look the same because one does one person puts a male-driven uh, action film on the Super Bowl Sunday the Super Bowl weekend, which everyone thought was verboten, that was taken, by the way, and it takes off, and then everyone's like, "Oh, wait, okay, we got a whole audience on that." We got, we got, so, so all of a sudden, Super Bowl Sunday becomes like a male-driven day. You can watch a movie release date, um, yeah. So it, it, I think there's a little bit of a sense of like, okay, well, let's let's just take a step back here and figure out um the best way to move forward in terms of whether or not something belongs on a paramount plus or whether or not something belongs on a on a um in a theatrical release i think the bigger thing it seems to me that paramount is trying to figure out is like okay well if it's going to be a longer if it's not going to work in a movie then maybe we just kind of focus on long form series on paramount plus and maybe not so much on movies because they're also looking at what's happening with netflix and they're having some issues in terms of their quality uh, over quantity uh, uh, issue in terms of what their movies look like and you know whether or not they're actually driving subs and making any money off them and they're saying okay well maybe we need to take a little a harder look at that so I think it's it's causing a lot of people to say 
all right, we just have to figure out what works best for what we have in house and how our platforms are established and how all our brands fit into this, this mishmash and then make a determination from there. Because I, I mean, it is interesting. I don't think Paramount is embracing the Disney way as much as they might have been maybe three or four months ago. Well, what's interesting is, is that you, you know, maybe this move by Disney is kind of genius, right? They, uh, they recognize what separates them from a Netflix is Netflix really pretty much has one distribution channel only OTT platform. That's really it. Mm-hmm. They've never been very strong in the theaters. Right. Uh, a- Amazon, same way, not very strong in the theaters. So the way that they can't compete is uh, having a strong theatrical release by having a cream Daniels in place as a strategist, as a quarterback, really to kind of call the plays and realize there are more platforms to distribute on when you're Disney than any other studio mm-hmm. and to kind of play it like an instrument. Yeah. Very interesting opportunity to really take down a behemoth that's been sitting out there for, for a decade on Disney's back. Yeah. Um, and then be able to recognize and be able to push things and pull things forward. Cause I'm going to guess some of this decision-making is a fast turnaround. Yeah. You know, you could imagine a year from now wanting to be one, one kind of distribution, things change with someone in Kareem's situation, you can pivot quickly. You can re- read the opportunities differently and actually make a faster kind of move. Um, before, can you imagine making that decision by committee? Yeah. You get everybody that would want to argue that their no. distribution is the right distribution. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting, huh? Right. I mean, it's not a, it's not a terrible, I, I, I think it's, the interesting thing I think is a lot about it is it's sort of Kareem's background, I think, which is a little causing some of the friction that the article somewhat alludes to um, because so much of what happens sort of in the content side is relationship based about talent. Bob Iger was very big on sort of being in the good graces of the community, the talent community, directors, actors, everybody. Whereas that's not Bob Chapek's style, nor does it seem to be Kareem's style. Um, you know, he's starting to make overtures to the town and get to know people. And he's not a flashy guy. He's not a guy who walks the red carpet and like Iger used to do all the time. And so that it's, it's sort of that differencing of style in terms of, well, you know, I'm going to make all these decisions, but I don't really know any of the people that actually work on all this stuff. So in a way, I think he maybe is trying to keep himself distant so he can make a more ration, rational based unemotional, unattached decision based on what the data is telling him. Now, granted, a lot of what happens in the industry is also based on your gut. There's only so much data can tell you. So, you know, uh, and I think that was another sort of critique against Kareem is like, he's never really had to make a decision on a piece of material based on his gut, based on like, you know, a lot of great movies that we have seen um, over the past 20, 30 years that we all talk. Well, at least they're not giving credit for it, Right. Yes. I mean, but by nature of his job, he's not making creative decisions. He's not deciding what movies get made. He's making decisions in terms of how overall, how much money they potentially get and what, what distribution channel they get. The, so the sort of the gut instinct in terms of like movies that get made, there are a lot of movies in 20, 30 years ago were just based on one executive or two or three executives saying, screw it, let's just make it. I, I, this is going to be a great movie. And it's just, it's that gut. You just, it, it's not something that, you can really train. It's just something that's ingrained in you. You can sense a great story and you just sort of cross your fingers. But I mean, I don't think he's really had to make those kinds of decisions. I think that's part of the reason why the town might be a little like cagey about, because that's a big part of sort of particularly on the content making side of, 
you know, deciding what actually gets pushed, you know, up the ladder and gets greenlit versus what gets, you know, put in turnaround and sent out the door. It was interesting. Richard was Richard Rushfield in this article was kind of pointing to um, the number of people who couldn't really identify who Kareem Daniels was or what right. his job is. Yeah. Um, one, one executive, I want to say a talent executive, even had a quote that says something like, um, I don't even know who, who you're talking about or um, I don't know <laughs> yeah. anything except for um, except for his name. Um, his name. But what's yeah. interesting is this. Yeah. And I think that might there. It might have been in the article pointing to maybe a fault of Kareem, his position and what what little is known about it. Mm. But it also might be pointing to really how slow the industry is to adapt to that kind of change. Yeah. If they don't understand the role, they're basically recognize, They're basically saying, well, that's not a traditional role. Maybe it's fly by night. I actually don't care. I'm going to go back and only hang out with the people and the roles and positions I'm used to working right. with. Right. Yeah. But if Disney is at the forefront of something, all these executives that Richard um, interviewed, they might be the ones with the egg on the face because they're the ones that didn't invest in the why Disney's doing something different. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you know, this is one of my big bones about the industry is they're very slow to adapt to change. Yeah. And um, that you're absolutely right. That's one of the things. They're like, I don't know who this guy is. I don't know what his role is. I don't know who he, what he's doing. So I'm just going to go to stick what do I know. So I'm just going to keep going to the executives over at Disney. I'm not even going to pay attention to this guy. Now, you did have a few agents, one agent, you know, they referenced who actually reached out to him and said, hey, we'd love to talk to you, just get to know you, what you're going to do, and Kareem responded, and they had like a 90-minute Zoom. So you never really know, like, what anyone's willing to talk about or, um, you know, discuss or get to know somebody because it's so different from what they've done in the past, and the industry is very much built on this sort of... Um, uh, uh, this sort of internship, uh, apprentice type style uh, model where you start in a certain way and you learn how to do things one way and that's how you do it as you rise through your career. And you don't ever really change because if you try to change, you're going to get mountains of pushback and then you're, before you know, you don't get your contract re-upped. So it's, it's a very much a, a system that's set up to sort of just keep doing things the way we've always done them. There's no need to rock the boat. And then here comes this guy and Disney, one of the arguably the biggest entertainment company in the world. And all of a sudden he has all this influence and power. And they're like, wait, what? Huh? I don't know. What. Yeah. And he's not. And, they're not, and he's, they're not paying attention to it. Yeah. But the other thing is he's not embracing the life. Like he's not going to all the parties. He's not whining and dining at the polo lounge. I mean, that was one of the first things they started out with in the article was he's not going to the polo lounge. He's not going to all these places where all the execs hide and, you know, you know, masters of the universe and their little corner booths and, talking about how the big movies they're going to make. He doesn't do any of that. So they're mm -hmm. like, wait, what? He doesn't even embrace the life? Like, what? Huh? Hmm? I mean, again, I appreciate that aspect of it um, because a lot of that is what pollutes the industry today. It's because it's a lot of yeah. people get into the business, not because they love movies, but because they want to be... And a big echo chamber. Right. Just yes. About. Exactly. So that aspect of it, I think, I think they just don't know what to make of him because he seems to be not a classic industry type and you know he's got his mba so they all like run for the hills because oh my god this guy's gonna kill me with spreadsheets that's not the creative process and it's like well we also have to remember that it is a business yeah it has to make money or you guys aren't going to get your lavish you know uh, expense accounts at the polo lounge so i think that's a part that drives it as well um i i still don't think they disney did a particularly 
great job in sort of describing what he did. And they just sort of like, here's Kareem Daniel. He's going to head up this media distribution entertainment thing. And then that was it. And then everyone's like, huh? And then, of course, as you said, like no one's really curious. So they're like, all right, I'm just going to go back to doing what I, what I know. Now, all of a sudden, because everyone's starting to get a feel of how much influence he does have. Now it's like, oh, okay. Now we're going to go. I mean, you think about it. He's, I haven't read. There's never been a puff piece about him on Variety, Old Reporter, Vanity Fair, Wall Street Journal. No one has done it. He hasn't done any of the interviews. Very low key. That's kind of my point. It's like the, that it's such a different position yeah. that the industry almost wants it to be, you know, not non-existent. Yes. And I'm going to say like the going's been good for so long. And there really has been a, a thought process. And I could imagine more people than not thinking like, well, why would I ever care? Everything's just fine the way it currently is. Yeah. And people have been making money for the last decade. And the mm-hmm. content's been growing and demand for content's been growing. But all it takes is one bad quarter of Netflix. Everyone starts getting cut or not everyone. Plenty of people start getting cut. They're going to start adding a different format to Netflix. So the landscape's going to change. And all of a sudden, these... People that life's been good and why would we have to pivot are way behind now because they haven't asked the right questions and par- been part of a strategic conversation. So that that catch up, again, very common for our industry to have to catch up to each other when there has been some very clear understanding that the pivot is there and changing. I don't know. I, I think what's interesting in, in the Disney case is, you know, they get to ask new questions. They really do have a lot more investment in greater fields of entertainment. So mm-hmm. they are they have very different data points than just viewers and eyeballs. So the thought that they could anticip- anticipate and strategize around some kind of different growth is pretty exciting. Um, it is showing if, you know, as this role strengthens and he gets more, more notice, it is showing another pivot that's happening really in just a few short years of Hollywood. And how yeah. Hollywood is kind of falling apart and doing something different about it, about the situation. Well, I mean, I, I, that's what I would applaud Ch- Bob Chavik for doing. He's trying something new. He's trying something different. Um, you know, it was a great, perfect rollout. No, I, I wouldn't. I would argue it was, probably wasn't. I would have done a little bit more um, sort of ingratiating cream into the community a little bit, I think. And that was one of the critiques of the article, which, by the way, was written by Nicole Laporte, not Richard Rushfield. So. All credit to Nicole. Um, but uh, so that was one of the, the mentions of the critique was he, he he didn't really do sort of a listening tour. Like he didn't, I mean, we don't know for sure. I mean, granted, this is all rumor conjecture because again, he wasn't directly interviewed and I think he declined to comment for the piece. So we don't know for sure whether or not he actually did and it just was all under the radar. But you have someone like a David Zasloff who, who's the new head of um, Discovery Warner Brothers and he's been very vo- very obviously meeting with everybody under the sun outside and in LA trying to figure out, get the ins and outs of the industry, how it works you know, all that kind of stuff, making inroads and making, building relationships, which is important. And, you know, I think that may be where, you know, and it seems to me that's where Kareem is starting to head. He's like, okay, I need to learn a little bit more about the industry, how some of this creative decisions are made. Um, but I, I, I kind of understand why he's trying to keep it at a distance because that's not his role. He's not making, he has to try to make as a, a, a most unemotional decision as possible and just look at what the data and sort of the 
the over, I mean, I, I know every creative's eyes glaze over when you say the word data, but as Kevin Getz has pointed out, and as I've said, and I will say to him, blue in the face, data is very important in terms of determining absolutely, you know, how you can like hedge your bets and not spend a hundred million dollars on a movie that's only going to make ten. So it's it, little things like that, and if he keeps himself out of those conversations, he's more likely to be able to make an, a rational decision um, based on what you know, his team is telling him and what he has, you know, the, the, all the information he has before him in terms of where the best place to go is and how much money Disney Plus should get for originals versus how much money Marvel should get for originals versus how much Lucasfilm should get. And, and you know, all those kinds of those decisions. And, you know, when, you know, they're your direct reports, it's a lot harder to make those kinds of decisions especially when you're dealing with big personalities like Kathleen Kennedy and Kevin Feige and whatnot. So I honestly got to think you're foolish to think that data isn't everything that people are looking at when deciding to make a film. I'm just telling you how it goes when we're in a meeting and you bring up research and the filmmaker's eyes just like, Ugh. <laughs> I know because we, we want to imagine like there's some golden child that just knows, yeah. you know, the kid right. stays in the picture kind of Bob <laughs> Evans moment. Right. Kind of crap of like, there's just some golden child that knows how to pick the right stuff and has this pulse yeah. on uh, the whole world's desires. And right now, the, the world's more complicated. There's a lot of channels. There's plenty of data to show it. Yep. And if you're going to get into content, it's really important to understand why you're going to make it first. Like the why has to come first. Let the yep. what yep. come last in the process and really determine what's um, what's what's important to uh, the studio business. I'll, I'll, and this is a, even a good question for you, but I, I kind of go with this idea of like, if you're going to make a film, if I were to make a piece of content today, um, as a matter of fact, I was having breakfast with somebody here and he was talking about the shows that he's doing, he's pitching on right now. Um, so with, with this person in mind, I was thinking like, what, what would I invest in today? How would I know what content is good? And that is one of the questions you're, you're probably answering all the time for content makers yeah. in your consultancy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how big of a difference is this in that decision-making? If you were talking to a client today and he was asking a question, what should I invest in? Well, I think it, it goes to a lot of like, again, I think your point about why, like why it, it, the idea of like, I want to make this just because I want to make it is just not enough anymore. There's just too much out there and too much, too many choices for a consumer to the point where they're overwhelmed. I wrote about this a little bit last week in terms of that's why I feel one of the reasons nostalgia is working so well right now is because people just know it. And they're like, okay, I don't have to watch a trailer. I don't have to go through a million, you know, go on my Twitter feed to see if it's been recommended. I can just, I just know this. And if you're going to break through that, you kind of have to know your audience really well. And that's where all the data comes in. And then you got to figure out what sort of, content is driving them to want to see you know obviously i just said and a lot of it is nostalgia based so that's where a lot of it's heading but that doesn't mean original content can't work it just has to have a hook that people feel like they have a sense like i can't not see this i have to be a part of it. it's that fear of missing out and the only way to really create a lot of that is to really understand the audience and the only way you do that is with data and you know most of the you know i get a lot of treatments when they're early on in the in the when they've just started making it. And my first question to them, and this is all credit to you, Tim, because I don't think I ever would have really asked the question first is why do you want to make this? What, 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 what is inspiring you? If you tell me it's because I've always wanted to do this story, 
you know what? I'm going to say, well, I don't know if you're ever going to get there. You got to have a why. You got to tell me, you got to give me something beyond just, I have always wanted to make this movie. And like, that's just not enough anymore, given all the choices and everything that's going on in, in, in terms of what consumers have to choose from. The why is so important to creating the voice, the purpose, the intent. It even defines the opportunity for audience. Um, yep. It gives you a clear scorecard, a really smart idea of what your return on investment is going to be. Yep. And really, if you understand and drive by your why, why, there are multiple creative decisions to make and pivot on as you're developing the content. If you start with the thing you're going to make, like, I really love the story. I want, I want to make the story. It's a shot in the dark. I mean, or someone yeah. else's why is going to merge with your what in order to, in order to decide that. Yeah. But it's not a clear direction. Um, so I don't know. D- Disney Disney is setting a pace. I mean, there's something different about what their studio is doing and the growth of their studio. Um, and I can see really, and I will, we'll probably see it play out a lot over the next few months, as Netflix pivoting to chase something. They never won their Oscar they're never um, have been known for the being the king of content when it comes right. to quality, yep. only just quantity. And now that they're running out of cash and have to make different decisions, we might find that they're going to talk a lot about you know what the dis- distribution is, who their audience is, and be more picky about what they're making. Um, we'll see if these decision makers like Kareem Daniels being being a new role. It'd be pretty awesome to, to see the industry pivoting and figuring out how to do this. Yeah, I mean, I, I again, I, I think it's exciting that it's interesting that he's a, he's a different role and the studio is trying something different. I mean, for for a long time, everyone was just chasing Netflix. Okay, we got to have a streamer, and we got to have we got now all of a sudden that model is like, okay, maybe we don't need to do all this. Like, and it, it, again, Disney was sort of like, okay, yes, we have this, and yes, they launched Disney Plus right in the heat of the pandemic, which was super smart. But again, they had all these brands already built out, and that's the credit to Bob Iger's strategy. He's like, I got to build brands because that's really what matters. And now he had, you know, now Bob Chapek has sort of said, okay, I don't love this idea of the people who create it sort of having all this control over how much they spend. So I'm going to try it and and over the distribution of it. Let's try separating those two and see if maybe that works. So he's trying something new. And again, I, you know, it's tough to do that in that industry because they're very set in their ways. As I said earlier, it's very apprentice-based. You start learning how to do one thing one way, and that's just how you do it. And to kind of push back, is it, it takes a lot of guts in a lot of ways to do that, especially in an industry, a company as legacy as Disney, where everyone, again, is set in their ways, and this is how we do it. This is how we do things at Disney. This is not the Disney way. Well... You know, now we see that it may, it may be working. And your point about Netflix, which is still kind of going through the convulsions of the Great Reset, if you will, with, you know, they laid off about another 150 people. Um, and Matt Baloney today in his newsletter said that more is probably coming. So there's obviously a lot of shifting happening. I think you're right. I mean, in Netflix, I think in the upfronts this week, I think did their first real upfront presentation talking about selling ads because now they're like, yeah, our 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 our, uh, our value prop doesn't proposition doesn't make any sense anymore. Uh, people don't want to pay yeah. fifteen dollars for what we offer, so now we have to figure out to lower the price. The only way to lower the price is to start selling ads. So you can see it all shifting. We should talk about that more next week because what we know is this idea of selling ads just didn't come out of the blue. They hadn't been talking about it for a while. <laughs> yeah. This is just the moment they've been waiting for. Like, okay, we know it's happening. Yeah. Well, Keith, to wrap it up. 
Um, I also just want to point out that the Eurovision winner was not Moldova. As, uh, as much as Lydia I and I that. were. Yeah. Did you show your kids the grandma banana? I did. I showed my daughter and I didn't get a chance to show my son, but I showed my six-year-old daughter and I had to like claw the phone from her. She just kept watching it over and over and over and over over again. So thank you for that, guys. Appreciate it. Particularly you, Lydia, for introducing it. Love it. Awesome. Thanks. (laughs) Yay. But the the team that did win was uh, Ukraine, Ukraine. as Lydia picked out. um, And it was the popular vote that did it, by the way, the people's vote. The the critics were putting Moldova pretty high. So we, you know, the team did well, Lydia. Congratulations to you and your team making some magic happen out there. And uh, next year, I think we're going to do um, our, our show on the road. We got to get to Eurovision next year. Oh, let's do it. I'm down. Yeah. Let's do it. We can do it live yeah. from Eurovision. <laughs> we're going to do it live from Eurovision. Uh, oh, I'd love that. That'd be awesome. <clears throat> That'd be great. All right, my friend, I'm going to go back and tour the UK before I have to head off to the rest of Europe. Yeah, so. enjoy. Enjoy your European travails. Thank you. Um, we should we should add to our audience that you will not be with us next week. My... Uh, our regular guest co-host, Robin Geisen, will be joining us next week. So uh, Tim will be somewhere on the European continent. Not sure where. Um, uh, Serbia. Uh, Serbia. I'll be teaching in Serbia next week. Yep. There you go. So uh, Robin will be joining us next week. But we will, we'll be thinking about you, Tim, and your Serbian class. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> we'll see you in two weeks. Sounds good. All right, later. Later.